All right. So I'm happy to see that you guys all braved this terrible Southern California weather to be with us today. Everybody was safe on the streets. You're such lightweights. It's awesome. And you know, this morning I found myself praying for those. I, I am grateful for the rain, but I was praying for those who are uh, out in the elements. And for this, for them, this is really, really a tough time. So actually, can I just start by praying right now? Uh, I don't know why I needed to ask your permission. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Father God, I thank you for the rain. And I thank you that you bless and, and send your rain upon the just and the unjust, that you uh, replenish the earth. And we recognize that it's on days like today that our our lives become refilled as, as the ground becomes saturated. And sometimes you need these gentle drizzles rather than the torrential rain that kind of just bounces off and keeps going. This, this rain, just as it penetrates the soil around us, can begin to nourish the roots and the seeds that have already been there and ultimately produce the fruit um, that, that sustains our life. And in the same way lately, we have been um, seeking to slow down so that you and your spirit can penetrate our lives and so your gentle, quiet voice can begin to reverberate and we can recognize how you are calling us out of hiding. Would you help us to hear your voice this morning? And Father, as I pray about the rain and thank you for it, at the same time I pray for those who are impacted by it because they have no roof over their heads. Because they are sleeping under a bush or under an overpass today. And this is a very difficult time. And I pray that you would continue the work you've already begun in, in calling your sons and your daughters out to, to rally around our brothers and sisters, around this city, around this county, around this country, and around this world who do not have and who are struggling like this family that we got to bless down in Costa Rica. And I am so grateful for that story. I'm so grateful for Lauren and uh, the eloquence with which she was able to share what she saw you do. And I thank you for the 16 team members that you brought home safely. But as she has already challenged us this morning, we don't have to go away out of our city or out of our sphere of influence in order to be on the mission field. It is all around us and there are hurting people all around us. Would you give us the eyes to see it? And if that requires us slowing down, then help us to do so. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, if you are just joining us, uh, we have been in a series, continue to be in a series for about the last seven weeks or so that we are calling Slowing Down. And this series has really been about how can we stop the harried pace at life at which we tend to run so that we can begin to, like this rain slowly falling, so that, so that the truth that God has for us can begin to penetrate our hearts, so that we can hear what he has to say to us and ultimately be transformed by him. And we've already looked at two different practices that Jesus lived out, modeled for us, but also called us to live. And that would be carving out spaces of silence in our lives. There is tons of noise that we surround ourselves with. And it tends to mask the internal noise underneath. And so we've been just challenging ourselves to carve out space where we turn off the radio, turn off the TV, shut off our cell phone, set it down, even don't even carry it around with us, um, and begin to then just sit and become more comfortable with silence. We've also recognized that as we are in that silence, a lot of the noise begins to bubble up, and sometimes that's uncomfortable, and we've talked about leaning into that. The second thing that we've discussed is this need for solitude, carving out space to sit with God and with ourselves and, and grapple with the insecurities and the, the questions and the disappointments, the frustrations in life that may kind of dwell beneath the surface of our kind of calm exterior, uh, as well as just kind of creating space for God to speak and be able to direct us any way that he wants and those are two tremendously important uh, postures and practices that Christ followers throughout centuries have utilized to draw them into an intimate relationship with God. But there's one more that if we did not talk about it, we would be completely missing probably one of the most powerful 
tools and practices that God literally wove into the fabric of creation from the very beginning. And if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, because we're going to begin our study of this practice this morning there. Um, For those of you who are familiar with Genesis, or maybe you've just heard the term, it, it, it is about the beginning of everything. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see God, the Creator, like this divine artist beginning to speak the heavens and earth into existence. First, he calls all matter into existence, his own big bang, if you will. And then from that point, the next six days he spends bringing order into the chaos, creating the land and separating the waters from the land so that you have dry ground. And then he begins to bring plant life and he fills the heavens with stars and a sun and the moon. And like this divine artist, he keeps stepping back and just going, oh, it's good. This is so fun. And then he kind of steps back in and keeps going. And he creates birds and fish and animals on the land. And then he creates man, male and female. He creates them in his image as his representatives to care for his good creation. All of this takes place over the course of six days. And then we come to Genesis chapter 2, the very first verse. We read, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So now let's lean into a couple of words in those verses that we've just read. The first word I want to focus on is that word rested. In the Hebrew language, that word is Shabbat. It is the word from which we get the term Sabbath. And it's translated here as rest, but it can also be translated as to cease or to stop. And so just looking at what's going on, obviously God is not exhausted from his labor. He's God. He could have kept going for forever, but he had finished the work that he had set out to do in creation And so now at this point, he ceases from his labor. He stops speaking things and forming things and bringing order from the chaos. He stops. And that's the end of that. It's the seventh day. And on the seventh day, he rested. He ceased. He stopped. And if we were simply reading, and those are the only two verses, we might interpret the term Shabbat to simply mean that he stopped working and that was it. But then we come to verse three, and this one is extremely important. Because then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creation that he had done. Two words that are tremendously important for us to lean into, to understand why the Shabbat, the Sabbath rest, is so important. The first term is that word blessed. You know, there are only three things in the creation narrative that God blesses. The first is the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, the animals that he creates. We read in chapter 1, verse 22, that God blessed the the, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. He said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the water of the seas and the air and all of this. So be fruitful and multiply. The second thing he blesses is mankind. Look down to verse 28 of chapter chapter 1. It says, God blessed, after creating male and female in his image, we read, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Do you notice that in both of those times that he blesses something, it is a blessing for continuation of life. New life will come from you. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with life. And then, somewhat unexpectedly, he blesses a day. And, and, and that leaves me questioning, well, what's the point of that? And I suspect that the same kind of infilling of life flows through the Sabbath day just as it does through the blessing of, of the animals and the blessing of mankind. And no, I am not suggesting that we should all try to get pregnant on the Sabbath. That's not what I'm talking about, new life. Although I suppose if you slow down and actually spend time with the, you know, your spouse, perhaps that might be a byproduct. But that's not the point. 
What my point is, is that the Sabbath is a day that God has built into the rhythm of our life that is intended to be life-giving. That if we begin to recognize and practice a day of rest, six days on, one day of rest, that we will begin to experience the life that is really life, that we will have a new infilling of energy, a new perspective on life, a new appreciation for what we have, the ability to enjoy the blessings that God has given us, and a new purpose, perhaps, that will shape and change the other six days of the week. So God blesses the seventh day, And then he goes a step further. He blessed it and called it holy. Now that word holy is tremendously important. The word is kodosh in in Hebrew. And typically when we think of holiness, what do we think about? This is the interactive portion of the morning. (laughs) What do we think about when we think of something that is holy? Set apart. I think of God. Right? I mean, we just sang a song just a few moments ago. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Right? When we think of holiness, we think of God because that term kudosh or holy means to be set apart from the common, to be totally other. And obviously, God is totally different, totally set apart from all of creation. Thankfully, he's also a God that chooses to enter into it. But he is not creation. He is the creator. And so he is holy and we are called to be holy as he is holy, but we can never fully be as set apart as he is. And yet he's not the only thing that's described as holy in scripture, is he? Because anything that is ultimately set apart for the worship of God, think about if you were to enter into the temple. There would be utensils that were used for worshiping God, bowls and and censers and, and, and candelabras and other tools. And each of those tools was set apart for the, the specific worship of God. Therefore, you would not use that bowl that was used for a ceremonial washing to perhaps whip up some pancakes for breakfast. That would be to use it as common. And that was absolutely anathema. So, Things can be declared holy if they are set apart for the worship of God, but also space is often considered holy, right? Think about when Moses is is trying to find one of his sheep that kind of wanders off as he's out in the wilderness and he runs across this bush that's burning. And as he draws close to it, he hears this voice, Moses, take off your sandals for the ground upon which you are standing is holy ground. What made that plot of dirt holy? God's presence was there, right? So the presence of God in that place demarcated it as holy. Isn't it interesting? If you if you were to say, okay, what is God going to declare to be holy in his good creation? What is the very first thing that he's going to mark as holy? We automatically might think that he would pick a place. That would be the most natural impulse for us because we are all about place. We're gonna, I'm going to go to church and we think of a place when in reality we are the church. But we have this mindset that it is about a place. And so we might think that he would mark the garden as holy because God is there. But he doesn't mark a place. He marks time. He, de- he declares time is holy, and specifically, he declares a single day, the seventh day, the Sabbath, as holy and set apart for him. Because it's on that seventh day. If he had said, this plot of dirt, this mountain is holy, or this garden is holy, then we might find ourselves in a position similar to what many of the Muslims around the world experience, where they basically say, I need to make a pilgrimage to Mecca so that I can be close to my God. But he doesn't set a place. He sets a time. And every single week, We have this opportunity, this invitation to pause from the regular cycle of life. To pause and to connect with our Father God. To be present with Him. And this led one of the rabbis, a guy named Abraham Heschel, to write this. He says that the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. 
I love that description. Sabbath days, days of rest, are our great cathedrals. It's on those days that we pause from the regular rhythm of running to be, to, to be refilled, to experience a new infilling of life, but also to be present with our Creator. To slow down long enough to hear His still quiet voice and allow Him to kind of shape the rest of the week. All right, turn with me. We're going to keep exploring this. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. You were afraid I was going to trip? Yeah, I know. Um, We've already seen that God set apart, by his example of resting on the seventh day, he then looks at that day and says, this is important. So I want you to pause. I'm blessing this day and I'm setting it apart as holy. In, in the book of Exodus, particularly where we're about, God has led his people, Israel, to the base of a mountain, Mount Sinai. We were there just a couple of weeks ago as we were talking about Elijah up on the mountain. Same, same mountain. God leads his people there, and there he hands out ten commandments, ten kind of postures and rules for holy living, because here's his goal— He looks at this rabble of people around him and he says, you are going to be set apart as a holy nation representing me to the rest of the world. And if you're going to do that, I need to show you how to live in such a way that the texture of your lives is different. I need to show you how to preserve your relationship with me, which is what he lays out in the first four commandments, and then your relationship with one another, what he focuses on in the latter six commandments commandments. And one of those commandments, the fourth one, again, that is focused on our relationship with him has everything to do with the Sabbath. Let's read this now in verse eight of chapter 20. He says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, set apart. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He points back to the creation narrative. He points back to his modeling of that rest on the seventh day, his blessing that day and calling it holy. And he says, this is why you should recognize this day. This is why you should build it into the regular rhythm of your life. Six days of labor, one day of rest, six days of of, of striving, one day of ceasing, stopping, laying down your burdens and just being present with me and one another. But notice how he starts this. Look at verse 10. He says, the the seventh day is a Sabbath to whom? To the Lord your God. Because my point here is that this is more than just, the Sabbath is more than just a day of rest. When we talk about the Sabbath, we always use that language. It's a day of rest. And that is true. And for those of us who go through life, we're not machines. We can't keep going seven days a week and expect that we're not going to break down. There is a regular rhythm built into our hearts, into the the, the fabric of the cosmos that says we need to rest. But it's not just about rest on the Sabbath. It's also about being reconnected and recalibrated by our true north. Let me give you an example of of what I mean by this. This is just more like a... I was a lifeguard uh, in Newport Beach for 10 years. And during my breaks, one of the things I enjoyed doing was swimming in the ocean. And I would try to, uh, on my break, I would go out, swim out maybe 100, 200 yards past the break, and then I would begin to swim parallel to shore, um, two or three towers down, get out, run back, and I would I would get back in the tower. My My natural tendency would be, I want to see how far I can swim in the short amount of time I have. So I would want to put my head down and swim as hard as I could, as fast as I could to get as far as I could. But what I found is that the ocean is not placid. 
It is constantly moving, constantly ebbing and flowing. And those waves, even though they weren't crashing, were still impacting and influencing the trajectory of my swimming. So that if I just kept my head down like I would in a pool and did my side breathing and just kept stroking, eventually, and sooner than later, if I looked around where I was going, oftentimes I was either headed straight in towards shore or straight out towards Catalina. Not where I wanted to go. And so what I found that I needed to do was from time to time I needed to pick my head up and reorient my efforts. And in order to do that, I needed to identify a true north, a fixed point that would not change. And more often than not, that was a pier. Either it was Newport or Balboa Pier that I would fix my eyes on. That's what I was swimming towards. And here became my new rhythm. I would swim with my head down for 10 or 15 strokes, side breathing the whole way because I needed to have breath in my lungs. But then after about 15 strokes, I would pick my head up and look for the pier. I would find it. And if I was headed for it, I'd put my head back down and keep going. And if I was off, as I more often than not was, I would recalibrate my focus, my efforts, and then I would put my head down and keep swimming. And even though that slowed my swimming down, I found that I swam straighter and therefore went further when I did that. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but it is absolutely true that by slowing down and refocusing from time to time regularly, I went further. And I got there faster with a whole lot less expenditure of effort. And the same thing holds true for our lives. Many of us in this room are driven by this need to constantly be going, constantly be producing, constantly doing enough. And we look at our lives and go, there is absolutely no way that I can shoehorn one more thing into my already overly stuffed lives. And so you have been burning the candle at both ends, sometimes in the middle as well. Just trying to satisfy all the demands and all the responsibility that that you have shouldered. But the Sabbath is a God-given gift built into the very fabric of our, our creation that says six days you labor, six days you run, but on the seventh day you need to pause and you need to fix your eyes on our true north and recalibrate the direction that you're running. Allow Him to guide your steps. And if you do that, although it may seem counterintuitive, you will actually find that your life is more productive and you are less frazzled and exhausted than if you simply ran seven days a week full speed. You know, one of the writers of Proverbs basically acknowledged the same thing when he said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't rely on your own understanding. In everything you do, acknowledge Him. Fix your eyes on Him. Orient your lives around Him. And if you do, what will happen? And He will make your paths straight. It may seem counterintuitive to allow yourself to rest when you already have more things than you can possibly get accomplished in eight days, let alone seven. It makes very little sense to the world to say, take one of those days and don't do any of those things that you would consider work. But the truth of the matter is, we were not built to work at that speed for that long and we will eventually break down. And if you're not willing to take rest, then your body will take it for you by making you sick or having you just burn out to the point where you're not able to focus and so you're not getting nearly the amount of things accomplished, sometimes rest is the best way to ensure that you actually get more done. Let's go a couple more places. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're fast-forwarding about 40 years at this point. The Israelites have been wandering around in the wilderness. Why is another story. But ultimately, they have come back to the edge of the promised land. They're about to cross over. Moses, who's been leading them this whole time, knows that he's not going to be crossing over with them, that his time is pretty much at an end. And so like a father who's about to send his kids off to college, this is his kind of last 
reminder, bit of advice. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's a reminder of where they've come from, where they're going, and the posture they need to take as they enter into this new place, this promised land. And in chapter 5, he reminds them of the covenant that God established with them at Mount Sinai. And he reminds them of these 10 rules for holy living so that they can be his representatives where they're headed. And once again, he reiterates the Sabbath down there in verse 12. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox or your donkey or any other animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Let's pause for just a moment. This Sabbath rest is not solely uh, for people who have enough that they can rest. It's for everybody. It's not just for the haves, it's also for the have-nots. It's not just for the royalty, it's also for the peasants. It's not just for the slave owners, it's also for the slaves. Or the, But, and this is a really important point, Moses, that, that's almost verbatim what was said in Exodus chapter 20. But now, Moses gives a very different reason for why they, the Israelites, should recognize and keep the Sabbath. Let's look at verse 15. He says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Rather than tying it to the the creation narrative, Rather than saying, hey, God rested on the seventh day, he blessed it and he made it holy, therefore you should observe the Sabbath. Instead, he reminds them of where they've come from. Remember, they have just been released from slavery in Egypt. They've been wandering around as free people for some 40 years now. And he points to the, the Israelites and he says, remember, you're not slaves anymore, so don't act like it. Because slaves cannot take a Sabbath rest. Only free people can. So your act of recognizing and observing the Sabbath, your act of resting and reconnecting with God is an act of worship to Him because you remember who you are. I'm free. Don't put the the chains of slavery back on. Do not become your own slave driver and say, I have to keep going. It's not enough. That would be like going back to Egypt. And he's saying, you're not going back to Egypt. You're going to the promised land. Pharaoh is no longer your ruler. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now your Lord and your Savior. So follow him and allow his cadence to become the rhythm of your heart, the rhythm of your life. Unfortunately, for the Israelites, um, their observance of the Sabbath, or at least the heart of the Sabbath, that they are free people who have been given a gift of rest and of reconnection, that didn't last very long. It wasn't too long before, as they're in in the land, they began to say, you know what? we want to be really good at keeping this whole Sabbath thing. We want to follow these rules. In fact, some of the Pharisees who were the keepers of the religious law, I mean, they were probably like the pastors of their day. They said it is imperative that we become a people who obey God. And in order to do that, and here was their rationale. If we obey God perfectly, they believed that if they kept all of the commandments and if they kept the Sabbath perfectly just for one day that every Israelite did it, they believed that God would send the Messiah. And because of that, they sought to protect the Sabbath. 
They began to build walls around the Sabbath, walls of rules to protect people from ever getting close to it. Kind of like you, some of you who have a pool will put a fence around it so the little kids won't accidentally wander too closely. That's what they were attempting to do. It was a wonderful posture, a wonderful desire, but it totally missed the point. And so they began to take this beautiful reminder of, hey, Six days you can labor, but on the seventh day you shall not work because the seventh day has been blessed by God and it is holy. They took that reminder and they began to go, okay, we want to keep that, but what does it mean to work? What does that look like? And they began to haggle with themselves. What does work mean? And they ended up breaking work into 39 different categories. You can't pick stuff up. You can't carry burdens. You can't harvest grain. You can't cook. You can't do any of these things that we would consider to be labor. You can't even pull your ox out of a ditch if he maybe falls in. You can't saddle your ox with anything. You can't put a yoke on his shoulder. All of those things, all of that is work. And then under each of those 39 categories, they came up with hundreds of other rules. Let me just give you a couple. One of the things they said you could not do, one of the the things that they determined to be work was to carry a burden. But what constitutes a burden? Well, let's see. So they began to haggle and they came up with stuff like, you're allowed to carry enough ink to write two Hebrew letters. Any more than that, though, would be considered a burden. So you can't do that. And you can carry enough milk to have a single swallow, but any more than that would be considered a burden. Um, and you definitely can't pick up heavy objects, and you definitely can't walk far. In fact, you should only be able to walk a certain distance. Well, how far should that be? Uh, let's call it, you know, just shy of a kilometer is what they came up with, and this became known as a Sabbath day's walk. If you ever go, and, and some of us who go, go to Israel next year, we will look around, and there are places where they've kind of designated, that they'll put streamers on, um, well, anyway, they've designated how far you you can walk from your home to get to the synagogue. And all of these villages that were built around synagogues were within a kilometer of it because you could only walk less than a kilometer a Sabbath day's walk. These were all rules that they kind of put in place in order to protect the Sabbath. Their desire was to keep it holy. But in the process, they completely missed the heart of the Sabbath. So much so that when Jesus showed up, he had tremendous conflict with the Pharisees. And more often than not, it was around this particular topic, the Sabbath. In fact, most of his conflict was surrounding it. And and, and I would say this, Jesus was not opposed to the Sabbath in any way, shape, and form. It's just that Jesus was opposed to their understanding of the Sabbath. They had buried the heart of the Sabbath so deep under rules that they'd completely forgotten what it was about. So at one point, his disciples and he are walking through a grain field and the disciples are reaching out and grabbing the heads of wheat and they would roll the the grain in their hands like this and it would end up separating the wheat seeds from the chaff and then they would blow it off and they would begin to take the seeds and eat them. And the Pharisees are saying, what are you doing? Don't you see they're harvesting on the Sabbath? That's work. Reprimand them. And Jesus just goes, God, what? You guys are making a mountain out of a molehill. And then he looks at them and he says, listen, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was instituted to care for us, but you flipped it. You think that you're here in order to keep the Sabbath, and so you focus on rules. But the truth of the matter is God gave us the Sabbath as a gift. And if we recognize and keep it, it ultimately keeps us. It cares for our souls. It breathes new life into us. You've completely inverted it. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. We, we were just reading a verse out of chapter 2, but, but have you ever noticed, if you've read any of the, the Gospels, Jesus healed a whole lot of people. 
But if you pay attention to it, you'll realize that the vast majority of people that he healed was actually on the Sabbath. And this was one of the primary things that got him in trouble with the Pharisees. They became irate at Jesus. Why on earth won't you heal on other days? Why do you keep picking the Sabbath? And in this particular instance, this is just one of the times that Jesus has a run-in with them. We read in verse 1, another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and there was a man with a shriveled hand there. So this guy is sitting there, he's got the shriveled hand and some of the, the, the Pharisees and the people there were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so they watched him closely to see if they would heal this guy on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, hey, stand up in front of everyone. So the guy kind of walks up in, in front of everybody. He's got the shriveled hand there. And then Jesus looks at the gathered Pharisees and the gathered people in that synagogue. And he says, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill. But they not wanting to kind of fall into some word trap, refused to respond. They remained silent. And Jesus looked around at them in anger He was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. And at that point, the Pharisees get so incensed that they go and grab a hold of Herodians, which are people that were Israel or Jews who actually kind of supported the the Roman occupiers. And they began to plot with those guys about how they might kill Jesus. Now, what's going on here? Because I read this and I go, it sure seems a whole lot like Jesus is picking a fight, doesn't it? I mean, he, he, he goes into the synagogue. He already knows because he knows what's in people's hearts. He knows that they're, they're like looking like, is he going to do it? Is he going to say it? Is he going to call? Is he going to, there's a guy right there that he could easily do it. Is he going to do it? And rather than avoid the controversy, he steps right into the middle of the controversy. In fact, has the guy stand up and stand in front of everybody. So in absolutely, I think that Jesus is picking a fight here. And this has to tweak the way we understand him. Because there are sometimes I think he was way more William Wallace than he was Mr. Rogers. Right? You don't crucify Mr. Rogers. So Jesus is picking a fight, but he's not just, he's not just picking a fight to pick a fight here. Because his point is that these guys have missed the point. They've made it about keeping the Sabbath, then about the Sabbath being a time of being kept and cared for and refilled and and, and restored. And so he's going back to the heart of the Sabbath. And in his mind, the Sabbath is a day for those who are in chains to be released for those who are broken to be repaired, to be healed for those who are exhausted and beaten down to finally catch their breath for those who are swimming as hard as they can straight out to sea, to pause, pick their head up and realize this isn't the direction I want to be going to be able to reorient their life. For those who have been struggling so hard to provide for their family that they have forgotten to actually be with their family, to pause and actually appreciate the gift of the blessings that God has showered upon them. This is what he recognized. And this is what he leaned into time and again. So was he picking a fight? Sure. But it was a fight worth having. It was a hill he was worth, it was, that was worth that he was willing to die on because they had been missing the heart of their God. Now, God blessed the Sabbath day. He built it into the very fabric of creation that there would be a regular rhythm of life. Six days of labor, one day of rest, six days to provide, one day to stop and remind ourselves, he is my provider. And every good and perfect thing I have comes from him. He's the one who gives me the energy to do it. Six days to labor for our family, one day to stop and and intentionally be with our family uninterrupted. 
breathing new life into us. And unfortunately, the Pharisees had missed that. They'd turned the Sabbath into a burden, not into a gift. And I fear that something similar may be happening in here this morning. Because as I'm talking about the Sabbath, my guess is there's probably some of you in here who are beginning to feel a little bit guilty. Yeah, I'm running pretty fast. Yeah, I don't even remember the last time I took a full day to rest. I don't even know if I could find the time. And quite honestly, I like that idea, but it just doesn't, it seems so counterintuitive that there's no way that I can really make that happen. And you're exhausted and you're frazzled and you're at the end of your rope, but you feel guilty. And that would be the opposite of my desire here. The last thing I want to do is heap shame and guilt upon you. That's the opposite of what the Sabbath is about. The Sabbath is about laying that kind of stuff down and just going, God, I'm tired. I'm weary. And I need you. We were created with a regular rhythm. We were created to have a regular rhythm. Six days on, one day off. And if we fail to keep that... Let let me just speak some truth here for a second. Uh, theologians have pointed out that of all Ten Commandments, this is the one commandment that is not specifically kind of reiterated and, and, and kind of reestablished in the New Testament. Meaning, they would suggest, it is not a kind of a, a law from God that we have to have, the, we have to keep the Sabbath. And I would agree with them that it is not overtly rearticulated in the New Testament as something we must keep. However, Other things that we know are good for us that's not specifically articulated in the New Testament are things like eating healthful food and drinking clean water and getting exercise for our bodies and sleeping eight hours a night. Those things aren't specifically spelled out in Scripture, and yet we recognize and we do them to the best of our ability because we recognize that's just wisdom. And so I would say, yeah, you know what? The Sabbath may not be something that is said we have to keep this rhythm every single week. It may not necessarily be specified in the New Testament, but you better believe that it is still wisdom. Sure, we can disregard it. It wouldn't be a sin, but it would be foolish. It wouldn't be, you know, you can ignore it, but to your own detriment, I suppose. And Kathy and I learned this early on in our marriage. Um, We had been running pretty hard, and my girl started to feel chronic fatigue. And we didn't know what was going on. We thought maybe she had mono or something like that. So we ended up taking her to the doctor. Doctor, was like playing doctor house. Like he ran a whole bunch of tests, blood tests, all this kind of stuff, breathing tests. And as he was doing this and as he'd sent those off, uh, he began to, to grill Kathy. Part of his intake was just to ask her questions about her regular week. And he said, what what do you do for work? What are you doing for school? All that. And she starts telling him all the stuff that she has going on in her life. It was myriad, like all of us. She has a ton going on. And he's listening. and, And finally he asks her, well, what do you do to rest? And she kind of goes, I don't know. And I kid you not, this secular doctor goes, you know, I don't really think that there's anything physiologically wrong with you. I just think you need some rest. And so I'm going to recommend that you carve out one day a week to do nothing and just rest. We had to go to the doctor to be prescribed a Sabbath. And the irony of that is not lost on me. But the truth of the matter is, we need this. It may not be a rule but it is a gift. And it may not be a law, thank goodness, because we're not slaves who need to put more shackles of rules on us. That's not what motivates us. What motivates us is life. And God has created this world and created us to follow a particular rhythm. Six days on, 
one day off. Six days to labor, one day to rest and remember that we are not the sum total of our lives and that we are not the ones who are in control. Six days to provide, one day to simply be present with our families. Six days to pour out, one day to be poured back in and refilled so that we can continue on. And of course, when he said that you need to rest, it raised tons of questions like, well, okay, great, but how? How do we do this? How does this become a part of the regular rhythm of our lives? What does it look like to rest? Is there a, is there a particular day? I love you, Darlene. Is there a particular day that we need to do it? And I would say this. Let me just say this about that. There is, uh, some people would say, well, it's sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday. That's how the Israelites and the Jews would recognize that. That was their seventh day, sundown to sundown. It's a beautiful rhythm. If you've never tried it, give it a try. But for many of us in the West, we kind of establish our seventh day off of Easter when, God, when Jesus, our Lord and Savior, rose. So we've made Sunday the day that we celebrate our Sabbath. And so many of you today are experiencing part of Sabbath, just being able to come and rest. I will admit that this is not a very restful day for me and my family. And so for us, it's a different day. We typically will do, for me personally, Friday is a day of Sabbath personally. And then my time with family is Saturday where we're together and I have to kind of ruthlessly guard that. And I will confess, I'm not very good at that. We let lots and lots of things creep in. Uh, Another teacher that I was listening to lately uh, on this gave two really good questions that he uses to determine what work is for a Sabbath for us. We don't want to have 39 categories with lots of rules. I just love these two questions. He said, is it restful? Is it worship? And if those two things are in alignment, it's both restful, it helps me to rest and relax, but it's also honoring to God. It's worshipful. It helps me draw near to Him. If those two things are in alignment, then I'm in. Um, I could probably talk for another couple of hours of laying out, and I'm not going to, I promise. Uh, I could lay out a whole bunch of stuff, but instead what we decided to do is we put together a Sabbath packet. And I'm going to ask that the, the ushers and our welcome team begin to pass these out now. This is a Sabbath packet that we've put together about how to experience this. It'll, it'll remind you of what the Sabbath is and what it's about. It'll explain to you what you're Sabbathing from, the kind of things that you might need to lay down, the things that you need to rest from, and you're going to be the one who determines what you consider to be work, and what is restful. It'll, it'll talk about some of the things that you can do to refill yourself, some of the ways you can rest. I might reiterate to you, buy a stinking hammock. It is a gift. And then finally, on the very back of it is a Sabbath devotional. This might be something that you can do as part of your Sabbath day. This is just a tool we've given so that we don't have to spend too much time up front going through it. We wanted to give you something to remind you. And if you want to take a couple of extra so you can give it to somebody who's not here today, have at it. If we need to print more, we'll print more. But my hope this morning is that although we recognize that the Sabbath is not a rule that we have to keep as if we are slaves in bondage and the Sabbath becomes our master, we need to be reminded of the fact that the Sabbath was made for us. And as we observe the Sabbath, as we keep the Sabbath, it will keep us. It becomes a day that is like a cathedral where we can draw near to our Lord and our Savior. Where we can find rest for our weary bodies. Where we can be reminded that we are not God, but that we, ha- we have a God who loves us and provides everything that we need. A day where we can actually enjoy the fruit of our labors and the blessings He showered upon us and actually be present with the very people we are working so stinking hard to provide for. And from this perspective, we recognize that the Sabbath is not a burden that we have to somehow shoehorn into our already overly scheduled lives. It's a gift from God. And if we, and I've seen this for myself, if we begin to observe the Sabbath, if we begin to 
to allow it to become part of the regular rhythm of our lives, then it will actually begin to shape and change the whole texture and, and, and flow of all the other six days of our week as well. It'll change the whole week. And so I hope that you will begin carving out the seventh day and look at it as dessert. You work hard throughout the rest of the week so you can just enjoy that seventh day with God and with one another. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. I thank you for the reminder we have this morning that from the very beginning, you knew that we needed rest to be a part of our lives. And so you built it into the fabric of creation. It has become the cadence of creation and we want it to be the rhythm of our lives as well. Kind of the heartbeat, that drumbeat, that backbeat that helps center everything else in our lives. You know the impediments that stand between us and actually experiencing that Sabbath rest. Would you protect us from an enemy who would love to to just sow shame and guilt on us? And when we mess up or when we find ourselves checking our phones and working on a day that we we say now that we want to set aside for you, would you would you remind us that there's grace in this, but that we this is a day that you have given us to just rest and be restored and refilled and reconnected and recalibrated to you. Would you guide our lives and help us to rest in you? And it's a reminder also of that Sabbath rest that we will one day have in eternity with you where we will get to just be in your presence and experience rest that is truly rest. And we thank you for our our sister Jean who's experiencing that now. We look forward, Father, to the day that we'll be reunited with her. But that's the hope that we have. This Sabbath rest is a taste of our eternal Sabbath rest. Father God, would you guide us now as we respond to this, whether it be through prayer or lifting up our voices in in gratitude to you. This, for many of us, is our Sabbath day, our day of rest and our day of worship. We now want to worship you in everything. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.